Another edition of the Behind the You podcast that is brought to you by UFIT Gyms. Train together, win together. Introducing UFIT Gyms as the official fitness center for the Miami Hurricanes. Ready to join? All it takes is $1 down. Let's go, Canes. Joining us now, Kelly Jennings. Kelly, thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So it's funny, Kelly. I've been around the university and the football program a long time, so your name, it is well known to me. But there's very often you walk into the IPF and you look up and there's a bunch of banners for all Americans and you see all the big time names, right? You know, Ed Reed, Antro Roll, Sean Taylor. And then I see your name and I'm like, you know what? People really haven't heard from Kelly Jennings in a while. We need to reach out and talk to him. But you're a part of that group. How proud are you of that? Man, uh, very proud of that. You know, when I hear those names, it just reminds me of the history of the program that I was blessed to be a part of. So let me ask you this. You're from Live Oak originally, correct? I am. And that's what up, that's up in the Panhandle, yes? It, not quite out on the Panhandle, but very northern, northern central Florida there. Northern. So that's not that's like Seminole Gator country. How'd you get to Miami? Yes, I'm right in between the two. The crazy part is my brother went to college at Florida State. So I grew up a big Florida State fan. Be honest, wanted to go to Florida State. And but we had uh, three D1 guys come out at the same year me and two safeties. They wanted a safety, not a corner. I ended up at the University of Miami. When you said three came out of your school, of your area? Yes, out of our school that year. Gotcha. Who are the other two? Jarvis Herring. He went to University of Florida and uh, Kyla Hall went to Florida State. I gotcha. So talk to me about your recruitment to Miami. Obviously at that time, you know, they just won the champion. Well, your first year, they won the championship 2000. They're in the Sugar Bowl. So if you're an FSU fan, when did they start recruiting you? And was it an easy decision to come down? Who else did it come down to? You know, mine was not on my radar. And I think it was Coach Solinger who had come through. And my, uh, I remember my DB coach saying, hey, I think Miami wants to offer you. They would maybe like for you to come down on an unofficial visit. And it was my DB coach who said, you know what, I'll take you down. And so Jarvis Herring and I uh, went down to the University of Miami and, you know, got a chance to explore. Like I said, Miami was not on my radar. But when I went, Walking around, meeting people, I actually committed um, while I was there. You committed on an unofficial. I, I did. It was at, well, let me see. I can't remember if I was actually there or it was the next day. I actually committed um, after going to the unofficial visit uh, to the University of Miami. So what sold you? It was just the feeling that I had walking around. Like it wasn't, the gym was still, it still had that small weight room. There was just an atmosphere there that overwhelmed me, I guess, to the point where I ended up committing to the University of Miami. When you say feeling, you're talking about like the campus or like interacting with the players, coaches from what? Interacting with the players and the coaches. I think most of the time I was spending in the athletic facility, it was something about that, that place. I got you. Now, you also played wide receiver in high school? I did. Now, was that an option or were you always going to be a DB? No, it wasn't an option. In my mind, I was a receiver. You know, thought it was only one college that was actually recruiting me as a receiver, though, which was Georgia Tech. But everybody else saw something that I didn't see and wanted me to be a, a DB and Miami was, was one of those. So we talked about those names before Ed Reed, Benny Blades, Antrell Roll, Mike Rumpf, you know, Ryan McNeil, Sean Taylor, you can go back to Fred Marion. Your name doesn't come up as much as that. Do you care? Does it bother you? I, I feel like a part of you likes kind of being in the background. My personality has always been the background. I was always give me my job and I'm happy with not without getting any recognition. So when those names come up, it doesn't bother me a lick when my name is not mentioned in that. I know what I was able to do. I hope, you know, able to contribute to the program. So that, that doesn't bother me at all. You walked into that locker room in 2001 as a redshirt freshman, or you redshirted your freshman year, let me say. 
but you walk into that locker room on a team that most thought it probably should have played for the national championship the year before. And you walk in as a freshman and you think what? I think I'm scared to death. <laughs> I mean, obviously you come in, you're this high school kid and I, I was a smaller guy, just given my frame and it's like, wow, all these names you hear about, you've been watching and watching dominate on the field. And it's like, well, how can I even contribute to this? But again, that, that air that was there, I think was just kind of in the locker room where it's like, there's something special here, which, you know, I think put the fear in me that you better come here ready to work and get the job done. And so that was kind of, I think, as I can remember back, what was going, going through me when I walked in there. Anyone take you under their wing? You know, it was, and that was the other part that was a beautiful thing. That whole locker room, you had Ed Reed in there, who was kind of the leader. Jay Lou, who was my, he, he was, showed me around when I came on my recruiting thing. And then Mike Rump was great as well. So you kind of had a, a collective of those guys just making sure we did what we needed to do. And then Antrell and I and Sean being on that same group and Marcus Maxey just kind of knit it together. And we uh, kind of learned the ropes that way. Change the trajectory of your career or find your new passion. Both are possible at the University of Miami's Division of Continuing and International Education. The division offers over 50 courses with online and hybrid options for on-the-go professionals and busy parents. Visit miami.edu slash DCIE to learn more or call our enrollment advisors at 305-284-4000 to discover which course is right for you. So you mentioned Ed Reed. If you're, if anyone's listened to this podcast and is a UM fan, we don't have to, we don't have to go much further than saying those two names. In fact, he's around the program now and I watch and I observe him and he's always talking to the players, right? Even like at, at the lowest moments, sometimes he's always pulling someone aside and just in their ear, you know, I'm sure giving good advice, but what made him special? You said he was kind of the leader. What, why did people listen? What was it that made him that way? You know, um, when you, if you ever watch war movies, um, at least for me, the generals that I like the most are the one that's like, I'm going to go take this hill with you. I'm going to die with you. And I think that was him where he was talking and mentoring, but he was dying on the hill along the way. So you saw the work and dedication that he was putting in, yet he was sympathetic when he needed to be. And he would kick you in your behind too when he needed to be to get going. And so I think just that and his personality all together just culminated as a guy you wanted to follow. So were you expecting the red shirt? You know what? I, being what I guess what I thought of myself and the talent that was in that room, I was like, I probably um, will end up redshirting here, honestly. But then I started kind of rolling and, and doing some things better than even I thought that I could. But overall, I think where I was mentally, it was best for me to redshirt. So were you at the Rose Bowl? Did you travel? I did. We traveled. All of us went. I was um, obviously on the practice squad getting getting a good look for for the team there. So as a red shirt, what was it like having to cover Andre Johnson in that group? You know, I tell everybody that that's, I think, how I ended up becoming as good as I was. Having to go up against him every day, me, 170 pounds against Andre, who was 220, somewhere around there. And man-to-man coverage, having to press all the time. It's either get better or go home was my scenario. So that is why I think I became the DB that I became throughout my years there. So then the next year, 2002, Kelly, there's a lot of guys to replace, a lot of shoes to fill. And then you guys have the best pass defense in the country. But I guess going into that year, did you guys feel pressure? 
Did you look at it as opportunity? What was the feeling going in, knowing that you guys were going to, you know, had to fill a bunch of shoes of guys who kind of established that championship team, but then also had left? You know, I think it was a little bit of both where the fear, but there was that, again, that environment that they had set and an expectation. And so for me, at least, it was, I can't drop this bar. You don't want to drop the bar where obviously uh, we won a national championship, should have gone the year before that. And it's like, we got to maintain this. And I mean, looking at that secondary that we were replacing. So we had some big shoes to fill, but we also had some athletes in that room who we believed could get that job done. So we just basically took, it's like taking a um, blueprint already and just work it. And that's what we did. We were given a blueprint and we worked the mess out of it. That's funny. You mentioned the blueprint. My follow-up was going to be, so what'd you learn? Like, what was the blueprint? What'd you learn from those guys? The blueprint was hard work and there's no, no quit, no matter what. And so, I mean, there's games, you can see we were some dog fights. And I don't know if even from the fans, you had this feeling, oh, they're going to roll over. There was a fight to the finish uh, mentality there and be the best that you can be because you have other people whose shoulders you're standing on that you want to represent and uphold. So what, it was you, Antrell, Sean, and who else? Mo Sykes was the other safety. We had um, Alfonso Marshall yep. was, our, was our other corner. All right, so I ask everyone this because his status is legendary, obviously lost his life too soon, but what do you remember about Sean Taylor? Everyone says it, so I know it's true, but was he that much of an anomaly in a good way, meaning was he just like a different character from an athletic football standpoint? Obviously, um, you know, with respect and condolences to, to him always, sometimes after people, you know, pass away, you, you kind of, you can make things up and make stories out to be I'm going to honestly say this is one where every story I've heard is true. What the man did was mind boggling sometimes. And to be that size, doing what he was doing, there are plays I remember where he's disguising down in the box, ball snaps, and he's deep in a corner somewhere intercepting a ball. And it's like, who is this guy? And obviously you see him hit people and it's, I mean, Greg Jones, who's this huge running back, everybody's afraid of, he's... Not, no question asked. I'm going in and I'm I'm letting him have it. The guy changed the position. Obviously, you hear people, you got children standing up in ways to mimic what he's doing. He had that type of effect on the game. So I imagine if he's in the box and then he's dropping out as a cornerback, you're like, yeah, I feel pretty good. <laughs> I feel really good that I'm not, even if I make a mistake, he's got my back. Yeah, and sometimes you come back and watch film on Sunday. I was about to say, when you watch film, you must have seen things you didn't see in the game. And you're like, what is he doing? Like, in the, like I'm watching film, like, what is he doing down here? But it's like, I still know in my mind, he like either knocked that ball down or picked it off. And that, that was what he was doing. But when it comes to Florida State, that 2003 game always gets talked about with Sean Taylor. Have you ever seen a game like that? And it's pouring rain. It's pouring down rain. And if I'm not mistaken, he dropped like two or three, fixed that game too. But again, just to show against a caliber of a team like that, the man could have like six interceptions in a game knocking people out, returning for a touchdown. And that was every week. And so that's what I try to say where you, we try to mystify people. But when you go back and watch film, though, you're like, this guy was just special. It's like that player that comes along like once every 10 years that, you know, I would say something God made. Kelly, 2002 Fiesta Bowl. Oh, so let me ask you this. This is the other thing I ask, because you don't seem like a guy who holds a grudge or 
I might be wrong, but does that one still burn you? You know, I uh, give you an example. I was helping a friend move here maybe a month ago and a guy, the house that he was buying the couch from guy rolls up. He has an Ohio state shirt. I was like, you know what? I can't even talk to you. <laughs> He's like, oh, what are you talking about? I was just like, I'm university of Miami. That one game out of all the games that I've played, I think I've tried to watch it once when they did the replay. And I just, I just can't, it bo- that, that bothers me. I mean, obviously we know the way it ends is painful for everyone, but does anything bother you as a player in terms of probably what you were hoping for and thinking, getting ready for the game and how it actually played out or just the way it ended? I think the way it ended just kind of, I think puts in the big crawl in the sense of we know how we prepared. Obviously the team we played against Ohio state was great, but to prepare the way that we did to have the mentality that we had to, I believe winning that football game, celebrating for then a flag to come out and this like take all that emotion you know, people throwing helmets up, having to, to snap pads and stuff back in to get going again. That was one hurdle to overcome in and of itself. But just looking at the play and knowing how it ended and then, you know, obviously we end up with the loss. That's just... Are you on the opposite side of the field? So the funny part about this is Glenn Sharp being in, I would have been on that side. But I, if I'm not mistaken, I rolled my ankle or something, so I ended up coming out. Glenn goes in. That happens. Great play by Glenn. And um, so I happen not to be in. Doing, uh, doing that play. People always mention his name only relative to that play and not in a finger pointing kind of way, I think in a sympathetic kind of way, but what was it like for him after? He wasn't done after that. He was back on the team, back in the locker room, back on the field. Yeah, so I mean, for Glenn, like Glenn was that athlete that came in too, that everybody was like, man, I better stay on my A game because this guy is, he's just that good. But obviously, you know, that play, which great play, and he went on, I mean, I would say to have a pretty decent career even after that. But things like that always kind of leave a cloud over your head. Just, But that's the mental aspect, which leads me as a growing leader on the team, tried to help guys continue to, uh, to overcome. Can you describe what that locker room was like afterwards? Um, I don't know. It's somber is the, the best word. I mean, I think there's a clip, if you see, even on the 30 for 30, where Antrell is holding me because I'm... I'm in tears after the um, after that. And so obviously we got a team that's in there that coaches are trying to, you know, put reason or in some way to what happened. But it was a broken heart and, and a somber time. In there. Yeah, that's the one that uh, it's funny. You do all these. We, I, this is, I think, near in podcast 90, I think, whether it's that or the 86 Fiesta Bowl or the Sugar Bowl 93. Those ones are the pain sears, you know, sometimes more than the, the joy of winning because of, of yes. how much you guys invest as players, fans, what could have been. You're right. It's hard to watch. I don't get too angry either. But when that game goes on, I go, I start. Get, <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. You don't ever feel those emotions. Yeah. Like I said, I can watch just about any games that I, we lost that, you know, got, I think, Virginia Tech at one point, I think 2003. No. So that was the next year you guys lost to them at, I think, there. Yeah, and they beat us pretty, pretty. Like I can watch that game, just even though I can, I hate it. But watching that and watching the Fiesta Bowl are like it's, it's like night and day still. What was the feeling after that Virginia Tech game? In the moment, only because I think you guys had like a almost like a forty-game regular season winning streak that was ended there, and obviously you had just been on a run of should have played for a championship, won a championship, was in the championship, and should have won. I'm sure hoping for another championship. So when that when that happens, you guys are what? Oh, man, you know, that's, I would say it's kind of like that first string pull of the 
the blanket of that starts to unravel where because we had been doing so good. And the one thing I, I kind of remember from that game is the mentality that we had, that blueprint, like even Jonathan Vilma, even coming down to like two minutes in a game where we're losing pretty heavily was like, hey, we could, if we do this, we kick the ball off, get the ball back, score. Like there was still hope that we were going to win a football game, even two minutes left in the game. And then after that, obviously you're now back home, back in the locker room, weight room, trying to piece together, whoa, what just happened here? And how do we lose by that much? And so now talks and things starting to happen. And so that was, that one, that one was tough because it was more, okay, no, we didn't lose on a bad call. This was something a team handed it to us when we were supposed to be and were a pretty good team. I think you were number two in the country at the time. Yes. And then I think the next week you lose to Tennessee. And in hindsight, obviously, we know what sort of happened in the big picture. You guys are living in the moment. But did you just kind of talked about the yarn unraveling. And I don't know if you meant specific to that game or maybe just in, in the bigger picture. But did you sense anything different or changing? Because you let's see, that's 2003. You left in 2005. Right. So did you sense a change? Could you feel a change? Or is it just something now that looking back on it would be easier to recognize? Now, looking back on it's, uh, I think it's something easy to recognize. Obviously, when you're in it, we're just like, hey, we got to circle the wagons. Let's let's get this together. I mean, we coaching staff great. We still had the same athletes. Um, obviously, number two in the, in the country. I, I can't remember if that game was middle. It had to be more middle of the season. We Correct. We were that's still a solid team. But now, looking back, you start to say, oh, okay, you can kind of see some things here and there. As you look back on it, those what, would you, what do you think those were? I wonder sometimes when you're flying high like that, sometimes you have a tendency to get complacent in some things. And so I just wonder there, because then I now can remember back to some conversations after working out, we would come together and talk and just, you start hearing some bickering here and things there. And it's like, ah, we got to, you know, and so if you're not careful, that can get away from you. We'll be back in one second with Kelly Jennings. Change the course of your career or find your new passion both are possible at the University of Miami's Division of Continuing and International Education. The division offers over 50 courses with online and hybrid options for on-the-go professionals and busy parents. Visit miami.edu slash DCIE to learn more or call our enrollment advisors at 305-284-4000 to discover which course is right for you. So uh, you played with a lot of talented guys. We mentioned Andre Johnson, Ed Reed, Sean Taylor. Uh, what was it like to try and tackle Devin Hester? Oh man, Devin, Devin was, Devin's Devin's shifty as he was. You just try to corral him and then, you know, hopefully if you can grab his leg, you can kind of tie him up a bit. So that was always my strategy against him. Just trying ankle tackle. Yeah. To try to ankle tackle him if I could. I gotcha. And so speaking, I think Devin's one of it, the, the heroic games was that orange bowl game in 2003, I think against Florida, the place went nuts. He definitely saved us. De Devin saved us a few times throughout that. And so, you know, it's funny, a funny story. Like I actually ran against Devin in high school in the state championship uh, track meet. And so he and I kind of had a little history in that. And so obviously getting him to the University of Miami and then you saw how electrifying he was. And oh man, 2003, I want to say also against Louisville. He had a big return that kind of set um, changed the game around. So there's no doubt he goes into the Hall of Fame in my book. So you ran against him. How'd that turn out? So if I'm not mistaken, in the 100 meters our senior year, he got third and I got fourth our senior year at state track meet. So wait, there are two guys that are faster than the two of you? There were two guys faster than the two of us, yes, sir. Okay, that's a little, that's a little hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we mentioned he played with a lot of big time dudes, but there's some guys and we all know the names, but there are also some guys that don't get talked about as much. So I'm going to throw a couple of things at you here real quick, Kelly. Okay. Harder guy to cover Roscoe Parrish or Kevin Beard? Roscoe Parrish. Because? Because I think that Roscoe was slightly quicker than Kevin Beard and he was faster. So make, being faster also made it more difficult. So you had a slight more quickness and the speed just made it harder. Physical freak of nature, Calais Campbell or Vince Wolfork? Oh, goodness. Vince Wolfork. Because? The guy, I mean, to, to be that big and move that fast. Was there a harder hitter than Brandon Merriweather? Other than maybe Sean Taylor. I was going to say, first. Uh, so we'll take first, him out. But he, he, he's number one. First one comes to mind. Um, Jonathan Vilma, obviously. Man, we had Beeson. Man, that, that's hard. That's a hard one to call. All right. Are we missing anybody? Like, is there someone back from your day that deserves more recognition? That doesn't get talked about enough? That maybe we should put on this podcast right after you. You know, a guy that I think that people we don't talk about much is Rocky McIntosh. Okay. Um, linebacker, obviously, but quiet, cool, calm, collected. But he was that guy, too, as a linebacker when he came in that other linebackers feared taking their spot. And I think he got ended up getting hurt once. But overall, like you look back at his career, he had a pretty, pretty stellar, steady. So it's funny, you've used the word fear a bunch. And, I, and I'm sure that originated from competition, right? Like just being able to play. But how much of that drove all you guys that, you know, either fear of not playing or if I am playing, fear of losing my job or just the, the inherent nature of having that kind of competition on the roster? I love that you drill down into that because I don't think I was making that clear. The fear that I keep mentioning is a healthy fear of, man, I have a spot that I don't want to lose and I have a legacy behind me that I don't want to let down. So there's this fear that, okay, I, in order not to do that, I'm going to have to excel and move forward and study in a type of way that you know overcomes that. And so that's the fear that I, I keep relating and talking about. Now, you just mentioned studying. And I know academics were always important to you. I think you were a scholar athlete in high school and dual major in college. So where did that priority derive from? You know, I'm going to say that from a probably a healthy and not healthy fear of my mother. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, that's a different kind of fear, right? Yeah. She was very, my, and both my parents were very stickler on education, doing well and respect. Like to disrespect someone for my teacher to call my mother and say, your son's not doing well or disrespect was a nightmare for me. So that's something I knew not to do because I was too afraid to do. Did it happen? Uh, one time uh, I was in middle school, had a parent teacher conversation. Just needless to say, my teacher had no more problems after uh, for me after that. So I had that going on of, you know, school. And then I kind of got on a roll where I was doing well in school and it became like what I expected and what teachers expected. And so that rolled into college. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, football might not make it. So I need to make sure I kind of sell in this area so I could possibly get a job afterward. And you settled on business and finance. How did that become your areas of interest? Well, you know, uh, growing up, I always liked math, you know, counting money and stuff with my mother. Kind of like most students after my sophomore year, they were like, you need to declare a major. And I'm like, uh, what major takes me to where I don't have to do any more English and I get to work in math? Oh, finance, counting money, banking. That was, you know, let's do that. So that's how I settled in finance and business administration. I gotcha. And now, because we, we've talked a little bit, you know, prior to this getting ready, 
obviously you were in the NFL for, for a while, um, but did you start to dabble while you were playing or not till your career was over? I dabbled a little. I would say I didn't dabble enough. One thing, if I could go back and do it all over again, would be during the off-season times to really learn or start thinking, what do I want to do next? Like I thought about it, but I didn't really pursue almost like internships just to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. But I did invest in this kind of like a money lending company that I got to learn a little bit about. And they were in, in real estate type stuff. So that was kind of the foot in the, my, uh, me stepping my foot in the water. Then along the way, after getting away from there, getting going in business and things like that, that's kind of where my career is, is headed now. What kind of track have you been on since? Man, it's kind of been a long track. I actually left when I retired from the NFL. I went to seminary to get my counseling degree, got my marriage and family therapy degree, and then ended up becoming a financial advisor because it was more counseling, but from more from what I believe a more objective standpoint where I could use numbers, where the other counseling was so emotional driven in some ways that I felt there's no formula you can show them that's going to provide the answer that satisfies somebody yes exactly and so I just found out my with my financial background with the counseling marrying uh merging those two together financial advising and that's kind of took me on that trajectory then finding out more about real estate so I kind of have the financial advisor thing that I do and then we have some real estate stuff where we invest in single family multifamily homes and stuff so what kind of advice would you give someone right now? Market's been a little shaky, Kelly. Well, if I put on my financial advisor hat, obviously we, we are a long-term investment type strategy. So I would say if you're in for the long-term, you ride it out knowing that these times will come. Prior to putting it in there though, have a plan going into it for the long 10, 15 years down the road. So when these times happen, you're not freaking out about it. And then from a real estate perspective, obviously we're at, a, I would say, top of the market there. Just Make sure the deal makes sense. Do the numbers. And if the numbers work, go for it. If not, don't force something in this time. Kelly, I uh, appreciate the time. Oh, also, wait, in, in all that, you're a homeschool teacher too. <laughs> I, I am. I am. We've been homeschooled. My oldest is 15. Uh, man, back when she's never been to school. So when she was five, we started. Now, my wife was doing a lot more of it in the beginning. And then obviously to get, help her, I, yeah, a few subjects I, I teach. We have some- not English. No, not English. No way, no how. English <laughs> was not my thing, but uh, we have six kiddos now. And so- Well, that keeps you busy enough, whether you're homeschooling them or not. Exactly. So I do I do, do, some, I do about three subjects in uh, homeschool. All right. Kelly Jennings, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you for doing this. I'm glad we got you on here. I'm glad people get to hear about you. You're in Charlotte, correct? I'm in uh, kind of right outside Raleigh in Chapel Hill. Oh, in Chapel Hill, my bad. Okay. And, and your firm, you said was in Mississippi. It's in Mississippi. Okay. Cause you, are you, you spent some time there. Yeah, actually that's, so that's where I went to uh, seminary. It was Got in it. Mississippi. Okay. So I lived seven years uh, there. All right. Kelly Jennings. Thanks for being on behind you, sharing your story. It's a pleasure catching up. Hope we didn't take away from any homeschooling. If someone gets a bad grade, please don't call us back and, <laughs> and, and point the finger at us, but uh, have a wonderful day. Thanks for doing this. And we'll talk again soon. Not at all. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. All right, Kelly. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. 